0: Welcome to A Word with Tom Merritt. I am the said Tom Merritt. This show was born out of my desire to have conversations about how we approach things. There's no end of people out there telling you what to think. Some of them uh, worth listening to, to to tell you, like, here are the facts. I've talked to an expert. Uh, But there is no chance for all of us to be experts or listen to every expert out there. We have to take shortcuts. So the idea here is to talk to, to people about how do you filter your information? How do you decide what to bring into your brain and what to take shortcuts with to operate in a world that has never been richer with information? These kinds of conversations are the sorts of conversations I've had almost my entire life. I attribute my love of just jabbering on to my grandpa, Carl, Who I would just sit in their front room and we would quote unquote solve the problems of the day while he paged through the St. Louis globe Democrat, not that liberal post dispatch rag. Uh, and we would, uh, and we would discuss things. And then I'd go over to my grandma Roxy, uh, and we would have great conversations and she'd tell me how evil Reagan was and all of that. And so I, I got all sides of the political spectrum and great conversations it has led me to this moment and my first guest i couldn't be happier is the host of alienating the audience and the political orphanage a member of the political triad uh, mr andrew heaton welcome
1: hello tom i am thrilled to be hanging out with you and i am honored to be on this new show
0: thank you so much uh for (laughs) thank you almost said thank you so much for being honored thank
1: you yes (laughs) I, you are welcome for being honored. Yes. <laughs> uh,
0: the word for today, friends, is tribalism. Uh, I, by the way, I want to say I will always have a word of the day and I will sometimes cheat and make it two or three. But for this episode, hmm. it's one word. The word is tribalism. And the reason I'm picking that word is twofold. One is we're all talking about, you know, tribalism and partisanship all the time, uh, these days. But also, uh, Heaton here is, researching this and and trying to get to the root of what causes it, right?
1: I I am actively writing a book on tribalism and groupthink. And it's all very selfish. I've just been really irritated the last few years and I don't really fit in tribes very well and so end up getting the rancor of everybody. So I'm trying to figure out why why is everybody acting this way? How do I how do I quit getting yelled at at parties?
0: Yeah. And 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 honestly, the the idea of of tribalism getting in our way is, is sort of at the root of wanting to do this show because it is harder and harder to have a conversation unless you're all patting each other on the back mm-hmm. and telling each other how right you are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how do you how do you dig into tribalism without being tribal about it?
1: Uh, I don't know that you fully can because so my my theory and I, I should say the theory that I've struck upon, I don't believe I'm the person that came up with this. I think that tribalism is innate to the human experience. And I'd like to go ahead and define tribalism when I'm saying it. I mean, unhealthy, groupish behavior. Um, I, I think belonging is very important. I think being a part of a group is great. Having a tribe of friends, all these things are wonderful. So I'm not, I'm not saying everybody should be like a, a completely atomized individual hanging out by themselves uh, or anything like that. Rather, uh, I'm using tribalism in the sense of I'm going to, Throw myself into groupishness and militate against another group and that struggle will be the dominant factor that determines the relationship between us. That's what I mean with tribalism. And I think tribalism in that sense is born out of both the positive elements of being human beings, which is to say that we are a hyper social species, but it also lends itself to these negative externalities uh, that come out of that. Um, We like being on a team. We seem to crave uh, opposing another team. Uh, we like being on a team and that makes us get to the point where we will throw that all out the window. And, and I, and I think, um, aside from just kind of the, the inhibition that we, we get, um, with, uh, reasoning, we, we also get into the, the very bad habit of demonizing, of sort of preemptively seeking out conflict and all that kind of stuff. All this brings back to your original point. Um, I think that because tribalism is innate to the human experience, and I don't think that anybody's immune to it, you you always run the risk of sort of either deluding yourself into believing that you were inoculated against it or Mm -hmm. alternately forming a anti-tribe tribe, tribe, which I think is what I'm trying to create. Is like, look, we're going to form a tribe, but at least we're going to be aware of it, and we're going to try to uh, highlight and obviate some of our sharper edges. Yeah, I I
0: I think it's impossible not to be part of a tribe yeah. unless you're Grizzly Adams. Yes. You know, and unless you're just the man on the mountain uh hiding away, which I, let's be honest, most of us are not.
1: Well, you know. But even even then, theoretically, let's say that Grizzly Adams runs into Sam Elliott and um also Ron Swanson when he's out in the wilderness one day and they make fun of his plaid if he recognizes them as peers in uh-huh. this archetype that he's a part of, that's going to he's going to feel as if he's losing cachet with his tribe in some capacity. So even then,
0: yeah, I I think one of the frameworks I use to to sort of test my approach to ideas, and and this is one of those shortcuts I'm talking about, is how would this have worked in the most primitive, but still recognizably human situations, mm. and that's why I, I think tribalism. Is So endemic and and unavoidable is it's how we evolved to survive, right? You Mm -hmm. would have your group of people that you lived with. There'd be your family, but also your extended family, the the people in the village, whatever, and your relationships with other villages, other tribes, other gatherings, even pre-village, right? Would be the definition of tribal relations. Sometimes they might be good. You know, you 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 might exchange ideas and goods and services. Often they were bad because uh, the the and maybe not even I shouldn't even say often, but sometimes they might be bad because you're competing over uh, the the water, you know, in in a in a parched area, or you're competing over the wildlife or or the good hunting ground or or, or whatever. And I I feel like that helps me explain a lot of our tribalism, which is. We can have tribes that get along and have friendly competition, and we can have uh-huh. tribes that that go head to head. but and and whether we should be calling it tribe or group or or whatever clan Click. yeah, clan yeah. We're, we're all part of more than one because our right. society is all complex, but it's natural for us to want to be part of that because mm-hmm. that is that was an evolutionary advantage for us.
1: Very much so, and there's a lot to unpack there. To put a pen in what you just said, I think that that is probably the best, uh, the best way to ameliorate our tribal impulses is to have a identity that spans multiple groups, because that uh, enables you to kind of understand that we are humans in different capacities. We'll get back to that in a minute. I, I like to take that evolutionary approach to it uh, that you just hinted at. The downside to it is, of course, that it is all uh, or, or almost all subjecture. There's no sure. way for us to actually test it in, in, a, in a clinical lab setting. But but Until I, I do time travel
0: someday. Yeah, but yeah yeah.
1: But but I, I very much do like um, putting that that lens on it of how do based on everything we know of evolution, what what's going to happen? So I, I'll go a step further past you, Tom. I like that you were being kind of open to like, well, may- maybe some of the encounters were bad, some of the encounters were good. It would seem to be based on the hardware that we've inherited that if the encounters were bad, they were so deadly that the human psyche had to be kind of wrapped around uh, tribe is a, a function of survival. And a lot of the time, the enemy tribe might spell out your doom. And, and the reason I say that is twofold. One, most of the archaeological evidence we have of the archaeological record is that the world was much more dangerous and prone to warfare if we go back pre-civilization than it is right now. Th- there, there is one thing we can look at in terms of modern hunter-gatherers, uh, although you have to put a very big grain of salt in that. Modern hunter-gatherers, uh, while they're more egalitarian and less hierarchical than the society we live in, they also have much higher rates of homicide and violence. Uh, But we have to put a a grain uh, of salt along with that observation because they're also exclusively living in parts of the world that are so resource scarce that nobody else pushed them away. Um, So for that reason, they're they're not necessarily emblematic of of where we used to live. But the other thing that I think is interesting, and and this really goes into tribalism because language really impacts tribalism, is uh, it would seem that accents are not random, but they're an evolutionary feature of mankind. Um. So it's not that we just kind of randomly drift in various directions in terms of how we speak. They happen almost at a pace, and uh, it seems to be a phenomenon of when we were developing speech as a species or a predecessor species – it was more evolutionarily advantageous to be able to immediately recognize outsiders mm. or perhaps cousin status than yeah. it was to be able to communicate. And that would indicate that even though there might have been good situations that were happening, the deadly situations were deadly enough that, that this kind of fight or flight instinct in terms of us versus them, groupishness was very important. And we, we've all inherited that.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh that that framework of like what was the what was the uh the earlier society like really does go on that knife edge of what i'm talking about where i don't know so mm-hmm. i imagine and i have to constantly test that assumption against mm-hmm. you know what is known or or what i find out is known and so that is the kind of thing where it's a great tool but it's not perfect Mm-hmm. and that 's really where i 'm going with this with this whole series is what are the tools you can use, and how do you know when you 're over relying on them mm. so when when we're talking about tribalism it's it's interesting for me to know how do you get past your own Instincts where you're like, Oh, that's a funny accent. I shouldn't trust it. Uh, you know, or that person thinks differently than me. Uh, so which is another marker uh, of, of being part of an out group doesn't think like the rest of us in here. How do you account for that? How do, how do you, you know, keep yourself, uh, from falling into the bias too often?
1: Right. Well, I think the first step is to acknowledge that we all have that tendency. Bingo, yeah. And, and really, the trick is you, you can't cure it. All you can do is take steps to actively refrain from inflaming it. Um, so, uh, in, in the forthcoming book that I'm working on, I think it's kind of like people are innately hungry, but it might be inflamed by walking past an, an Arby's where you can smell the delicious roast beef sandwiches. Yeah, where they I haven't mean, to eat today. Or are alternately people are innately horny, but it might be inflamed if you, if you go into a racy rated R movie. Uh, but it's still there, right? Like the craving for these things is there. The mm-hmm. craving to be a part of a team and to oppose another team is there. In terms of the steps that we can take to try to ameliorate this, one, as I, as I mentioned, and you've mentioned, being, being aware of that tendency is very important. Um, something that you mentioned earlier in the show is I think, I think it, it is innately helpful to be a part of multiple tribes. So uh one of the things that I look at that I think is exacerbating tribalism right now in our society and I say this as a secular unchurched individual is that I think that kind of the really one of the major big factors is just the fact that people are no longer uh going to a uh, a church or a synagogue or a mosque or anything mm-hmm. like that and the reason I say that is I think if you were to go back I don't know, 50 years where pretty much everybody's going to some kind of religious body. You could go to the local church and you are a, you're a deacon at the Presbyterian church. Uh, and the other deacon's a Democrat and you're a Republican. Well, you know that in truth to you, your church identity is more of a strong community than than the abstract concept of a political party is. You know that Bob's a Democrat, you're a Republican, but you know he's a good guy. And, and you're going to, you know, you're getting coffee after church. He can drive your kids home, all these things. So when when you're encountering him and he has a very odd idea or an idea that you strongly disagree with, he's at least human to you. And I think the more, the more of these, um, different institutions or clubs or whatever you're a part of, I think that that just, you're more apt to encounter people that you would otherwise disagree with or that you have some commonality in. And that's going to allow you to interact with them in a way that, that won't immediately tripwire that us versus them instinct
0: yeah the 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 common refrain I hear about that is either uh well it 's the decline of religion that 's mm-hmm. causing the problem and and if we we would all get religion again uh that would solve it or well it's it's all this technology mm-hmm. people have uh hey, rely too much on on t v and the internet It used to be t v now it 's more the internet in that in that critique but you know you're you're relying too much on technology instead of uh-huh. actually leaving your house and going outside and looking around. I think those are all too simplistic, though, because I'll tell you what, I feel way more a part of my community since I got a dog (laughs) than I did before because I walk the dog. And when I walk the dog, I go outside and I run into people. And so maybe that does lend some credence to the religion and TV arguments, but... I don't think it's because we're all weak people. That, that that seems to be the implication of a lot of criticisms. It's like, well, people are just stupid these days. And, right. and you know, why why can't they be like me and, and do things right? But I, I don't think it's that. I, I think it's that we have too many other impulses and in, in the olden days you you get bored. Faster, and you'd go find, you know, Pat next door and, yeah. and and find out what's up. And it's not because you're a weak person that you don't do that. It's because we've we've structured such a more complex society.
1: Yeah, I agree with you there. I don't think that it's any type of moral malaise or or moral weakness that is resulting in this. Um, I, I in fact categorically reject that. And insofar as uh, we can look at morality over the last three hundred years, I think it's been getting better and better. Um, We seem to have developed a much greater sense of societal empathy. Um, You go back like, God, like 300 years ago, like bulldogs exist because they were literally bred to fight bulls for the amusement of Englishmen and later Mm. Frenchmen. And like, I mean, like, that's, that's messed up, right? Like, that would be, no one wants to do that now. No one wants, to, like, the, the few reprobates who need dogfighting are a subset of the population. So, in, insofar as there's been movement, I think it's been positive. Uh, but, but I'd say the hardware's not changed at all. So, I, I, think you're right. I think it's really a structural phenomenon more than any type of lethargy going on. And in that capacity, I, I think that it's, for me, kind of rooted in, in the Robert Putnam theory, uh, and both technology and, religion play a role in this. So Robert Putnam uh, became famous as a sociologist circa 2000, uh, writing a book called Bowling Alone. And the thesis to that is that society has had a collapse of intermediate civil institutions, which I know is a mouthful, but basically intermediate civil institutions are things you belong to that aren't the government. Mm-hmm. Um, so your book club would be an example of this. Your church would be an example of this. If you were in the Elks Lodge – uh, if you play Dungeons and Dragons, uh, it could, it could even be like, uh, you, the dog's a great example. I just got a dog. I am now friends with literally both of my next door neighbors and the neighbor next to them because uh, occasionally our dogs will get out and also we'll just call each other and be like, can you come take my dog out around three o'clock today? Uh, and all of those things with, with Putnam, who I think is on to something. Putnam, what he does is he, he does really good quantifiable, uh, quantifiable analysis of how Involved people were from like 1950 to the year 2000 in terms of these various groups and clubs that they're a part of, institutions, groups, and clubs, civil intermediate institutions. And he notes that there has been a remarkable decline in membership to these things. So I extrapolate from that that as we have been declining in club membership, group membership, neighborhood associations, et cetera, and in particular religion, that the religious impulse has shifted onto politics, which remains a group activity that has not been impacted by all of this. Politics remains, if not standard, a bigger force in our lives. And so people have done that. But I do think it's just kind of a structural mishmash that's happened. I think technology plays a very big role in it. Um, I actually think TV is has done more than more, more damage than anything else has. And, and, and as of 2022, that's still standing. Television is such a – like for the record, I would love to have a TV show. So I'm, I don't want to be like full Amish on this. Like I, I, I work in entertainment media. I really sure. like it. Yeah. Um, but, but it's kind of like dessert. Like it's not, dessert's not the problem. The, the mass consumption of dessert is the problem. Sure. And, uh, a very good case can be made that the second television is created, uh, people just quit going out. Yeah. at massive rates. Like like in in prior to 1953, I I don't remember when kind of the watershed moment is for people to get televisions, but it's very quick. It's actually much faster than cell phones and the internet. When people get TVs, all of a sudden people start hanging out at home watching TV uh and and eating their dinner for 3 to 5 hours a night. And and that happens everywhere. Whereas previously, even though we were all much more bored and and there's certainly trade-offs, like I I w- I don't want to live in 1856 Osage County, Iowa. Either, but you were bored. You did have to kind of go hang out with your neighbors, and you did have to go to church and, and all these these various uh, institutions. Once television happens, people stay at home and they really atomize, and and that seems to have played a role. Um, internet seems to have played a role as well in that. Uh, while I am a part of numerous online groups, uh, the political orphanage that I host is is an online tribe uh, that I facilitated. Uh, it, it also has made the way for people to more and more find. Like-minded people to where when they encounter people they disagree with, they're not used to dealing with people that they like that they they disagree with anymore, and so that pops up.
0: Yeah, another one of these frameworks that I use to try to you know to shortcut is to look at something like you were talking about with TV and say, okay, but. How similar is that to the previous and the later developments that people say the same thing about hmm. and, and not, not to disprove, but sure. to, you know, kind of provide a baseline to compare it. Right. Sure uh because if if you do go back and look there there's a lot of complaints about books yeah uh, about people reading and and they uh, were now fantastical that people can read
1: yeah people were getting sucked into these nonsense worlds and they, and they just stay and women inside are reading and
0: read and they, yeah. they never go out and talk to each other so mm-hmm. and and I'm not trying to say and therefore sure. everything's equivalent and there's right. there's never worth the point but What's the best way to measure that and be like, okay, is it? Let's look and see if there is a difference with TV because I think there is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just have to, you have to be able to say, what do we look for that tells us, oh, the the book thing had an effect, but the TV had a bigger effect or a lesser sure. effect or whatever. Sure.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I think you absolutely should be doing that, right? I mean, you're basically applying the scientific method to the theory, which is like, when you create a theory, you don't try to prove the theory, you try to disprove the theory, and you you steal man at yourself. Yeah. And, and you're doing that exactly as you should be doing. Well, and, and, and by the
0: way, that that's a thing that
1: people don't do enough,
0: right? Because mm-hmm. it, it's hard. But if you really do want to not be fooled by your own biases, I think that's an important skill to pick up. But go ahead.
1: Oh, for sure. Like I'll, I'll say like I should do this more frequently and I do this for a living and I'm writing a book on it. But uh, a really helpful exercise is to pick some topic that you have strong feelings on and write a one-page essay from the other perspective and, and do it as hard as you can. Like you are a defense attorney whose job is to get this position exonerated. And the few times I've done it, I've walked away and gone, oh man, my previous argument has some holes in it. When I summon the mighty weapon of my logical mind uh, to, to crack it down. Um, no, people should absolutely be doing that. I had, um, uh, or I just interviewed Bill Crystal last week, who's a, a, a big um, kind of muscular liberalist in foreign policy circles. And, and I, um, I told him, I want you to make me feel uncomfortable. Like I, I disagree with him on a lot of stuff, which is why I said this. It's not that sure. I wanted him to touch my thigh or anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I was like, I, I would like for you to test my hypotheses here. And I the the goal for me is for you to invoke cognitive dissonance because that means that you are doing a good job communicating your ideas and I am being open and receptive to them. And, and a couple of times in it, we both step out and kind of summarize the other person's position as best we can, as smartly as we can, um, because then we can avoid all the dumb stuff. To go back to your earlier point, Tom, I, I think that the uh, people have always been freaked out by technology is a it makes sense. I, I think that that is a a good thing to keep in, in the back of your mind. I interviewed a guy named Jason Pfeiffer. He hosts the uh, podcast Build for Tomorrow. It was previously called the Pessimist Archives. Um, he has uh, wonderful episodes about how at one point people were afraid that teddy bears were going to ruin civilization because yeah, yeah. they were going to – Ruin the boundaries between boys and girls, and make the boys soft and all just nonsensical stuff right yeah. and um, same thing about books that the books were seen as as these flights of fancy and fantasism. Uh, we, we we would now be thrilled if if students were reading, you know, five hours a day. That would be wonderful to us. Um, so all, all of that's true, and I think that you should be. We we should all be concerned. Particularly those of us that are over twenty five should always be concerned that we're just turning into curmudgeons. Where where I will push back a little bit is I do think that television is functionally different than any other medium which exists in that television is different than reading and that reading is an active phenomenon, whereas television is a passive phenomenon. And even if you love reading, I I think you would be hard-pressed to say that television takes an equal amount of energy to consume that reading does. Reading does take a little bit more energy to it. And the, the data is impressive to look at. I don't have it at my fingers. But, I mean, really, when television is invented within five years, the average household family is watching like 20 hours a week or something like that. Now, again, that's the family. So that's not every individual. Sure. Uh, but that that's going strong. I mean, that's never abated. It's actually gone up. Uh, I think it peaked around 2018. It's gone down by like an hour or two in the last few years. But even then, that's you, you have to question well, how much are people watching Netflix and things like that. So so I, I do think you see a, a correlation in terms of the atrophy of civil society. I think that that is uh, demonstrably correlated with the advent of television and people not leaving their house for uh, the semblance of a social life and entertainment anymore. I, th- I think that that's pretty good. I don't know what else would really account for it if we accept the idea that it's not – moral lethargy, but rather some structural phenomenon which has militated against um, these various overlapping institutions of which we are a part.
0: Yeah, yeah. and obviously with anything, it's like, well, just because we haven't thought of it doesn't mean there isn't something we missed that, that's also causing no. it or, or and, anything. And, and but, yeah. The
1: the other thing too is that it's it's almost certainly multiple factors. Yeah. Absolutely. Like like really it's it's almost just what's the biggest factor. So like there are other elements of technology that I'm thrilled we have that I will like if you called me Tom and went, I have a time machine, do you want to go back to nineteen forty? I literally don't want to go back anywhere where there's not air conditioning. I don't know. I just I, – I have no interest in going past 1962. But like that, that's another thing where it does have an effect on uh, society and it has an effect on our sense of belonging and neighbors. So like two things that that come up that you wouldn't think about, we certainly didn't think about when we invented them, were paved roads and air conditioning. Uh, and I also am very glad we have paved roads, incidentally. I don't want to go back to gravel roads and dirt roads, but when, when gravel roads were the norm for the majority of Americans, when we're living in a rural, we have, we have cars, but we're living in a predominantly rural society, uh, where paved roads are just the main street in your town. When you're driving through your town on a gravel road, you're driving probably eight to 10 miles an hour. So when you see a guy on his porch, you just stop your car and talk to him for a minute. But you don't do that when you've, when you're driving 45 miles an hour. And that guy's on his porch, incidentally, because air conditioning doesn't exist yet. So the way houses were designed back in the day was that they generally had a large overhang at the front porch so that you could be shaded and you would come out and you'd be able to see all your neighbors on their porches. You could shout over to them and say hi. Uh, and we, we don't do that anymore. Now again, I am, I want air conditioning. I live in Texas. I do not want to get rid of air conditioning, but there's lots of different factors like that. There's also some, some theories that, the emergence of suburbs have perhaps contributed to this by virtue of having people that work in well, one I was gonna place, gonna, I was gonna live in one place. Paved
0: roads with transportation mm-hmm. as, as being mm-hmm. an, another element of that, right? Is that yeah. Not not only are you in a car, uh, but you're you're going farther. You're you're certainly not walking home, you know. Uh, yeah. and and so you're you're not passing through anywhere either.
1: Yeah. It uh, th- That is a theory. I don't, it doesn't seem to be, the correlation's much weaker than television. And the reason I say that is, uh, according to Robert Putnam, kind of, in, insofar as we can quantify membership in these uh, intermediate institutions, the Elks Club, Garden Club, et cetera, and, you know, neighborhood watch, all that stuff, it peaks in the 60s, it peaks in like 1968 or so, is kind of the apotheosis of Americans joining stuff uh whereas the the move to the suburbs happens well before that it starts happening in the 50s so unless there's a weird lag effect mm-hmm. where people continue doing whatever their previous society thing was even when the technology removes the reason for it that does not seem to be the the other thing that is not correlated with it is the size of government now that i have to say i'm a little government guy so i would love for this That means to, you to- like
0: a little government not that you're a small government guy
1: I don't even know.
0: (laughs) What's the difference there? You're a normal sized person is what I'm saying. Oh,
1: yes, 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 yes. I, I am not a, uh, a short bureaucrat.
0: You're not a member of the government who's very short. Yes.
1: Uh, rather I am a delightful, wonderful person who likes free enterprise and limited government. Uh, and it would, it would somewhat behoove my, it would, it would be somewhat beneficial to my worldview to find out that the government crowds out civil society. And this is a theory that conservatives like that when you have welfare and you have, really active uh, government programs that they eliminate the need for people to depend on each other and that atrophy civil society. But the data doesn't seem to support that conclusion uh, based on two things. One, within the United States, there's no correlation between the amount of club memberships and how big the state government is. That is to say, California does not have a demonstrably lower amount of club membership than Texas uh and and you would assume that that would be the case and then the other better example is that uh, norwegian states have massively huge governments and they have much higher social trust and and intermediate civil institutions so it doesn't seem to be correlated um and, and so like that's something that you know we can kind of look at and go well, well, we ought to toss that one out
0: yeah, I think uh, another another one of those shortcuts that's like steel Manning. Steel Manning probably sounds like a lot of work to people, which <laughs> you know it's like, man, I have to write a whole paper from another point of view. A shorter version of that 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 I like to do is say, well, let's take the same statement and put something different but equivalent in, right? And I, I did that earlier when we were talking about TV and books. Like, right. okay, if I put books in there, does it stay on ridiculous? Which case? Right. Oh, that that's a hint. It's not proof, but it's a hint. That maybe there is something different about TV, and so when you were talking about TV being easier to watch, I was doing that in my head and saying, okay, so let let's say, okay, TV is correlated. The rise of TV watching is correlated with a lack of participation in the in these community groups, into the into these these substitute tribes. Basically, mm-hmm. is it because TV is new? No, because. TV hasn't been around that long in the in the in the full scope. Are we going to get literate at TV?
1: I don't think and,
0: so. And I, I, and and, I, and hear me out here, okay? All right. Because my, my, the, again, this is a postulation, not an assertion, right? Uh huh. Have you ever had a TV show where you're like, "Oh, I can't watch that. That's too complex. I'm going to put this easier TV on." Right?
1: Yeah, I've I've got that. Sure. Depending on my mood, maybe I'm gonna. Sure. I'm, yeah.
0: So. What I'm wondering is is there a situation where the problem isn't TV, the problem ah. is easy TV, right? Right. Uh sort of like, you know, the problem isn't books, the problem is romance novels, uh would mm-hmm. be a reverse way of a, of a, of applying that that to books. Uh and I'm not saying romance novels are the problem. I'm not, sure. I'm saying that's an allegory there yeah, yeah. that you could do. Like is there a situation where we learn that ah TV is a problem. However, if everybody's watching very complex television it doesn't have the problem because you know may, maybe maybe we 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 get tired of tv and go out and seek each other or is it more of a situation of like even if it's more complex that's just going to drive you to watch easier tv more and that that makes the problem worse i don't know
1: maybe it's possible i mean uh I think that the if, if we're going to swap in variables, I feel like junk food would be a really good one here.
0: Yeah, that's a good. That's a great one.
1: Of it's it's you know we 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 crave high calorie, um, fatty, salty, sugary stuff, and that craving's not gone away. We still want that food just as much, and kind of in the same way. Junk food's probably a lot tastier now, I'm guessing, than it was you know 50 years ago. Uh, but we've we've managed to make it healthier. And and on that note, I'll say like I think. Television's way better now than when I was a kid. Television yeah. is so much better, and it's instantaneous. Like, like we're living in a golden age of TV right now. Um, so, possible that that by virtue of having more complex television, we will uh, like kind of wear ourselves out on it. I don't think so for this re Or I, I think so, but I think it's going to be marginal. Right? Like, uh, I moved to Dallas a few years ago. I didn't know anybody in Dallas, and. Uh, I remembered having these conversations with myself, where I'd get home from work and I'd go, "God, I'm tired. I just want to drink a beer and watch TV." And I would, I'd force myself and go, "No, if I do that, I'm never going to make friends in Dallas. I have to yeah. go out and I go swing dancing." And that and then partly influenced in me. Up Mike's-
0: in Fort Worth,
1: and I, mm-hmm. yeah, now I, I went to. There's a great place called uh Sons of Herman Lodge uh that does swing dancing in Dallas. I made some good friends there. Oh, that's friends amazing! Yeah, but I remember how like. Man, how exhausting that was. Like, it yeah. was like to, to force myself to go do that. And I'd have to give myself little tricks. Like, I only have to go for half an hour, uh, and then I can leave if I want. And sometimes I would. Sometimes I'd stick around. I think that if that was going to happen, it would have happened in mass a while ago. Uh, I, I'm sure that it has happened to some extent. I don't get the impression that my grandparents were worried about TV consumption for their kids. Uh, I don't think my parents were terribly worried about TV consumption oh, for really? me. I think. That, oh yeah,
0: no, my my, my parents agonized in, oh, in yeah. my era. Growing up in the 70s, the boob tube, yeah, ah, yeah okay. kids watching the TV too much. You know, like you, you gotta let you gotta limit maybe,
1: it. Maybe it's because I was just very active. My parents weren't that worried about it, but I, I was going to say, like my contemporaries that are having kids are worried about that. Yeah, right? yeah. So well, there, there's there a whole are, thing
0: about screens in general. Right? Yes. Not even so there TV.
1: are these yeah. there are these restrictions in terms of. In terms of how much we do, uh, but I, I don't think it would f- solve the problem for this reason, like restricting your kids from watching TV for, um, you know, five hours on a Saturday, I, I think is different than we are not going to watch TV after 6 p.m. at night. I think the time people yeah. are going to go watch TV is even if they're limiting themselves to an hour is generally going to be when they're home from work and they're tired and they might otherwise go out and meet people. Um where I do think I, I just
0: realized why it was different. In the 70s, first of all, it was self-limiting. You only had three channels, right, so yeah. kids would get bored anyway. Uh-huh. And two, there was a lot of like TV's gonna make you dumb, but not my responsibility <laughs> to do anything about it. It's <laughs> right. a whole different ethos to parenting. I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs>
1: well, I, I do where I do think you're gonna see some changes is or, I I do think we're going to slowly learn both phone and online etiquette. Like I think there's gonna be etiquette around it. And I, I guess we've kind of done that. Like I i wasn't around in the 50s, but I'm guessing if you just came over, didn't say anything to the host, sat in front of the TV and refused to leave, that would have been considered impolite. I would imagine uh, so.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wasn't around then either, but right. that, that so, seems reasonable.
1: I, like, I, do think, I do think phones were developing an etiquette. Like I, I think we're going to get to the point where uh, we just kind of – I think we'll get to the point where like we just agree we don't check our phones or text during meals. Where, like, like if and when I sire children, they won't, you, you won't be allowed to have your phone at the dinner table because I want you to focus on who yeah, you're yeah, around. Yeah. Uh, I think, um, I, I, I don't know about you. I really don't engage in online arguments anymore. I did when Facebook was new, but I've kind of been burned on it enough and I've realized that it's mostly a waste of time. And so I've quit doing that. And I feel like a lot of people have just all kind of checked out of political arguments on Facebook. So, oh, my, I, my,
0: my new thing, if it starts to turn into an argument, is just say, you're right.
1: <laughs> right, uh, or you could very well be right. Yeah, yeah, uh, or some, something to well, I, that effect. I, yeah,
0: I, I even if I don't think it, I just lie, and I'm like, yeah. "This is what you want to hear." We're not, we're not arguing to learn anymore. You're right. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so I, I do think we'll, um, we'll, we'll come up with like there, there are certain things where technology greatly, greatly shoots ahead of society's ability to deal with it. Uh, the printing press is another good example of something that I'm very glad we have. Mm-hmm. That caused a lot of tumult when it first came out. So that all might happen, and then you mean there's in I mean, Korea, uh, yeah, where yes, the first exactly. movable
0: type, first movable uh, type, people often forget. Came did did from they Korea. also use it to bring down the Catholic Church? They, they used it, used it to things? create the longest-lasting Confucian society in history. I, I don't wow. know what that says about
1: the. Cool. Court. Okay, so apparently it, it it could be used for. <laughs> uh, I mean, it uh, wasn't t- t-
0: very egalitarian sh- for people, but sure was stable. I,
1: that sounds fascinating. I mean, I have to look into that. Uh, yeah, I don't yeah. know a lot about that. Uh, there's well, there's also the hope that we, with the TV thing too. Like it's it's weird that I've become like a 1980s anti-TV guy. I, like I, again, I used to work in TV. I'm, uh-huh. I'm flying to the History Channel next week to do stuff with the History Channel. It's 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 just the amount of people. Well, you're, uh, of,
0: you're a tobacco executive who doesn't. Yes, smoke. exactly.
1: Yeah, no, I'm a tobacco executive who smokes a cigar a week and tells uh, yeah, everybody okay, else you, you can there enjoy you your cigar, yeah, just don't right, smoke right. it three times a day. I think perhaps we're going to see some changes uh, due to lockdown and the pandemic. And it, it also wouldn't surprise me if you're going to see some real long tail stuff from kids that were in lockdown, because if you're an eight year old in lockdown, You've effectively experienced a lockdown nine times as long as I experienced as a guy in my mid-30s. Yeah, And right. so – Just it, because
0: – a Percentage of your experience, of nothing exactly, else. Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: Exactly. And the amount of memories you're making are at a higher frame rate mm-hmm. than the amount of memories I'm making. It, it's my hope – And I, I kind of see this with my friend group. I don't know about you, Tom, but like I, I am more – uh Like I, I just went and bought $150 worth of board games. And am am now pushing my friends to come over once a week or once every other week, and uh, I I am not taking for granted my ability to go see people anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I imagine a lot of other people in that thing. So it might be that we we get kind of a resurgence in these various groups, and and that we we develop a more healthy balance with television consumption.
0: Well, and that, that actually leads me to wanting to circle back on something when, when you made what I thought was a great comparison to food for, you know, junk food and stuff, Mm uh, which makes me wonder if maybe we just are not as far through the TV adoption cycle as we think, maybe because it had such a fast adoption, we think so. The thing with food that I, I remember growing up was as, as junk food got more and more popular, the fear was, well, it's the tastiest we're we're evolved to want fats, you know, and and because they're rare. But now that they're they're plenty, it's just going to get worse and worse. And it hasn't. If I think if you were to go back into the '80s to that person who was was worried about junk food and say McDonald's will come out with salads in ten years, they they would have laughed their ass off. Yeah. But we're, right. We're we're doing things that I didn't think as far as changing our habits to be healthier. And and I'm not just talking about elites. I'm not talking about the Whole Foods uh, folks. I mean, in general, people there's less of that like, all I do is eat steak, right? Like there, there's a little more of like, oh yeah, you know, I just want to eat a sensible diet. And mm-hmm. I think it's been centuries that we've had to get our grips around abundance, you know, at least a couple yeah. of centuries. And we're just now just starting to have the glimmer of like, ah, maybe as a society, we are starting to learn how to control that part of our character. Maybe it just takes a little longer and you need not that I want a pandemic, but you need things like a pandemic to kind of shove people towards like, Hey, maybe having too much of this is a bad thing. Go play some yeah. board games at Heaton's house. And we start to, we start to get a, a little more of a natural. Thing kind of like the etiquette you're talking about with the internet mm-hmm. of like ah okay so I should read TV that I should watch TV that's good for me like I should read a book that's good for me rather than reading a a cheap paperback uh, maybe we start to develop that because I feel like TV is becoming. The book, the way, you know, Dickens serialized his novels and we now read them as novels. TV is serialized storytelling that that we're going to think of as as a novel, as a as a complete
1: yeah. unit. And again, point. they're there's so much better. I'm like there's multiple. Yeah, series exactly. Right. I, I love Better Call Saul. I'm watching that. I'm watching a documentary on uh, James Saville, Bad guy, by the way. Uh, and, uh, um, I've, I love Star Trek. There's all these things. Uh, and, and like, yeah, you raise, you raise a great point too, that we have developed these things. Now, there are, um, an interesting inverse of this, um, is that when we get into civic engagement, Junk food and smoking, these things are disproportionate based on socioeconomics, right? Yeah. So, uh, we've had this weird flip in society where if you go back even a hundred years, if you were fat, you were probably rich. If you were skinny, you were working class. Now it's the other way around. If you're rich, you've got a gym, you've got a personal instructor. If you're, if you're poor, you just go to McDonald's and you're off the dollar menu.
0: Well, is the pattern there that if you're rich, you're further along the learning curve? Like you're further along, what maybe not learning curve, the improvement curve of like, oh, I'm rich and I'm fat because, you know, it's hard to get food, but I figured it out. And then everybody gets food and you're like, ah, I'm rich and I'm thin because I figured out how to deal with too much food.
1: I'm not sure. It also might just be a, a question of stress uh, because um mm. like like in terms of uh, uh, social trust, social trust is declined in the United States, but it hasn't declined at the upper quintiles socioeconomically. It's declined at the lower ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it, it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, to be sympathetic to people that are working, you know, two jobs 80 hours a week that are very exhausting jobs, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they're just so tired that they don't have the mental wherewithal to go buy and make their own food from the grocery store that's healthy or alternately but, even but did to go out and see people. Does a person without
0: union protection in an industrial factory have higher social trust?
1: Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah. So why?
0: Um, so it can't. So well, not that it can't. Well, but that uh, implies see, that maybe it's not just exhaustion. Yeah.
1: No. And, and that's that's the other thing is that while while social trust and health are are uh, uh, at better rates within socioeconomic levels at the high than the low, it actually goes the other way around when you get into political polarization. Uh. So when you get into politics, people that are in the managerial class. So mm-hmm. if they're in media, like you and me uh where they're in politics or even if they're um, if they've got a master's degree or something like that, they're a lot more likely to be much more ideologically coherent and attached to a party. Whereas you find when you go down um, and you're you're dealing with people that didn't go to college uh, that that uh, aren't part of that that socioeconomic status, they might have feelings about parties, but their their ideology is actually kind of more scattered. Uh-huh. so you'll like you'll find the guy in West Virginia who's uh, a social conservative that really likes the idea of the WPA. Uh, you'll, you'll find the guy in Texas that um, is uh, – m- maybe he's kind of anti-immigrant, but at the same time, he really likes Medicare, and he likes things like that. right? So you'll, you'll see those kind of things more, um, and, and I don't know what accounts for that other than a kind of maybe like a, a echo chamber happening um, at the top.
0: Or or some kind of pressure for conformity at the top that advances your social career in a way that doesn't yeah. exist for the for the other folks.
1: Yeah, could be. Uh, it huh. could be. Yeah. It plus, like, um, it might also be that I'm trying to think of how much interaction you're having with unlike people based on the um, where you are socioeconomically. My guess is. The more wealthy you are, the more you were only going to hang out with other wealthy people. That's my guess. Just kind of mm-hmm. shooting from the hip here. You know, during the pandemic, uh, if you were a wealthier person working in technology or or something that was a high end service industry, you could work remotely from home. You you didn't have that luxury if you were lower on the scale. You're also probably if you're going to be in that higher echelon, you're probably in a city. Uh, I I have a theory. This is just a heat and theory. I have a theory that there's actually a, a kind of municipal level that's the optimal spot to meet unalike people. Uh, and and uh, what I mean by that is uh, before I moved to Austin, I lived in Tulsa for six months, a uh, very nice place. One of the things that surprised me about Tulsa that I had not anticipated was how much you meet people you wouldn't normally meet. Uh, and the reason for that was it is a city, but it's not a very big city. So there's a cigar bar that I liked. I think it's mm-hmm. called Magic Cigars, I want to say, um, downtown. Well, there's only two cigar places in, in Tulsa proper. So if you like cigars, you're going to meet everybody that likes cigars. And I did. Uh, I became friends with Josie, who's my transgender friend. And we really like Star Trek, and we could talk about that. We're good friends with Phil, who's an older black gay man. But the three of us are hanging out with like the black guys coming in that that grew up in uh, downtown Tulsa. And we're all hanging out with the farmers that live on the edge of town that come in. And and because there was only that one cigar shop, we all liked each other, met each other, became friends. Whereas when I lived in New York City, I wouldn't go into cigar shops, but you're more apt to sort of sequester yourself uh, in whatever thing is you feel comfortable with. You're going to run into people in the subway, yeah, but in you, a social environment. More room
0: to find that's, – that's actually one of the things I discovered about Los Angeles is that I didn't dislike Los Angeles. And I, I know this is a sore point for you, so yeah. you know, bear with me here. Uh-huh. But I thought oh, I'll never live in Los Angeles for obvious reasons. Uh, and then I moved here and after living here I realized, oh, Los Angeles is an entirely different city depending on what you do and where you are in it. Yeah. And honestly, you know, what people think about Los Angeles, they, they think Hollywood, uh or they think downtown, CD, Skid Row. Mm-hmm. But most of Los Angeles to me, after living here, is mostly bilingual Spanish English people running restaurants and, and either construction or body shops. That is the majority of the actual people in Los Angeles. Right. Uh, and that, that, that's true in South LA. That's true in Van Nuys. That That's true out in East LA. Like we cherry pick like, oh, but let's just talk about West Hollywood. Let's just talk about, you know, uh, uh Pasadena. Let's just talk right. about Santa Monica. But those are, those are actually smaller portions of it. Uh, than than the parts you actually see if if you just sort of if you just crisscrossed it like a graph without without trying to get any anywhere in particular
1: that's uh one of the things I love about Austin where I currently am is that Austin's this really cool uh, synthesis of like hipster dressed as living disco ball. And old man with cowboy hat and eye patch drinking together. Like, yeah. it, I, I, I like that. I like that uh, kind of Brooklyn colliding with Texas thing. And I me, me being a cosmopolitan city dweller from Oklahoma with rural roots, that suits me very well of kind of being in that amphibious zone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
0: So b- before we wrap up this conversation, what can we what can, what have we learned today? What, what what can we tell folks about you know being able to see beyond their tribes? Because one one of the things I have a problem with is prescriptive. Like, so you just need to to do something that you don't want to do that's uncomfortable, and then that'll that'll right. fix all your ills. Like, I yeah. I feel like those those are important. You know, to like, like recognizing, like, if I make more effort, uh, that'll be better. But I think there's also just different ways of, of seeing things and, and thinking about things that can also help and make it easier to do those hard things.
1: Yeah. I, for sure. Um, I mean, if, if you, if, if I can stitch on another five minutes, if you don't mind, yeah, sure. um, uh, I, I think that was the original remit of the show was not the why, but the how. Yeah. And I, yeah. I know the why a lot better. So I just kept dragging you back. I <laughs> no,
0: no, um, no, no. And that's fine. We, we need the why to get to the how.
1: So, so with the how, I, I think you're right. Like one of the things that people say is, you know, you need to consume more media from other, other folks, uh, like uh, from vantage points you disagree with. Um, not only is that kind of exhausting to have to go consume more media than you already were, um, there's all, also some pretty good evidence that it backfires, that you just go, man, they're even dumber than I thought, that you basically just provide yourself with more sure. ammunition for why you dislike them. Some things that I find very useful, uh, that I, I would pass on to anybody are when you're let's – I'll bring it back to politics, but you could do this with Catholics and Muslims or whatever, any any group that is an in-group, out-group situation. Um, When you're talking about the other group, the out-group, when you're referencing them internally, picture the top 10 smartest, kindest percent of that group and use that as your touchstone. Uh, I think that what's happening right now in part is that a lot of the time when people mention Republicans or Democrats, they are immediately invoking in their minds – the dregs of that particular group. And when you've got a party with how many, 50 million people each, I don't know how, how it's a pretty big group, right? There's a lot of reprobates and degenerates in both parties. You don't have to try that hard to find some people at the bottom who are nasty. Uh, but like for me, I'm very fortunate. I, being from Oklahoma, having lived in New York, having lived in Austin, I've got lots of truly wonderful, good, conservative and progressive friends that I frequently disagree with. But I like to picture them in my mind When I'm referencing Democrats and Republicans, and it keeps me from uh, rushing ahead to demonize those groups. One of the other things I think you can do that becomes very helpful is to just get into uh, epistemology, get into heuristics. And I know those are clunky $7 terms.
0: Yeah, college boy.
1: What does that mean? (laughs) If there's, if there's a group of people that you are, are irritated by, figuring out how and why, how they think will at least make them not crazy to you. So like a a quick thing that I can give to everybody listening to your show that's been immeasurably useful to me, that, that you don't have to read an entire book on, although you can. There's a, an economist I like named Arnold Kling. Uh, he wrote a book called The Three Languages of Politics, which I will summarize for you very briefly. And that is that progressives tend to understand and communicate about politics by explaining things as oppressor versus victim. That is the rhythm that they're listening to. And try that once you're through binging all of Tom's stuff, you've run out of the Tom canon. If you listen to NPR, which I like, you will find that NPR understands the universe predominantly as victim versus oppressor. And that that is the stories that they are attracted to because that is the world they live in. That's what, what they're looking at. It's not even them trying to, to be, um, uh, it's not them trying to pull a fast one or it's anything. not an it's agenda just, it's yeah it, it's
0: just the stories that they're like oh that's a compelling story right. tends to be that kind of story yeah. there's
1: there's yeah there's so much data they can't have all the data they have a lens right now conservatives have a different lens that they're using conservatives understand and explain the world to each other as civilization under threat and if you watch Fox, you will find that this exact same phenomenon is happening. Go watch Fox tonight. Watch Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity or whatever. I guarantee you every single story, every headline could have a subheadline of civilization under threat. And that is sometimes from outsiders like terrorists or invading armies or the migrant caravan that came and they were afraid that, you know, they'd come in and change society. Or it can be internal. It can be moral malaise and moral lethargy. Uh, and classical liberals or libertarians tend to understand the world as coercion versus uh, voluntary action. So uh, is, are, are you doing it – did anybody make you join the thruple? Then you're fine. Did anybody make you drop the acid? Then it's fine, right? Mm-hmm. But a, a lot of the angst that we get comes from the fact that not only are we interpreting the world around us differently, we are also explaining it differently. So like uh, the, the Black Lives Matter stuff is a great example of this of – Uh, people invoking the ire of the other group without necessarily meaning to. So Black Lives Matter, and I'm, I'm speaking very broadly right here about a very complicated topic, but Black Lives Matter, when you're talking to progressive Democrats, they are seeing a historically marginalized group of people that are suffering at the hands of the authority, which is police. That makes sense to them. Intuitively, that's the world they live in. So they're wanting to fix that situation. Meanwhile, conservatives who live in this world of civilization is under threat, civilization is delicate, it is it is always one generation away from from pandemonium, they're seeing this as you guys are kicking against cops. Well, cops are what hold chaos at bay. Cops are what hold the bad guys from coming into my neighborhood and robbing me. So the conservatives are seeing this as – you fools are kicking the legs out from under the table, and that. So both of these groups are are almost. I'd say talking that's even more, more
0: pertinent to defund the police aspect. Yes, of that particular one. A yeah.
1: perfect example yeah. of that. Of like that that going on. Um, there's also like I mean we we could really get into the weeds here, but there's a uh, there's a political scientist that I like. I'll probably bring him on again. It's either Eric Grossman or Michael Michael Grossman. Uh, I I apologize for getting that name wrong too. Uh, One of the things he's pointed out that I think is pretty accurate is with the exception of Donald Trump, Republicans tend to organize uh, their party ideologically. Whereas Democrats tend to organize their party coalitionally. And what that means is that Republicans are thinking in terms of schools of thought. You've got your neocons, you've got your social conservatives, you've got your, li- uh, your libertarians, uh, you, you, they're, they're, they're organizing around thought. Meanwhile, the Democrats tend to organize around the various groups that are a part of their coalition. The unions, the teachers, uh, African Americans, and all these, all these various groups that comprise uh, a lot of the time marginalized people that have kind of banded together to aid the system to help them right so when conservatives and progressives look at each other they don't understand that the other team operates in a fundamentally different way and and so they infer the other team is operating as they do in lying about it so you'll you'll see this with a lot of conservative talk radio hosts they'll look at the the liberals and go i am so steeped in ideology the progressive running for office must be as steeped in ideology as me, but they're not talking about it. They're not talking about
0: So they're hiding it.
1: Lockerberry Goldwork. Exactly. Yeah, so right. they must be they must be secretly reading Saul Lepensky or reading Karl Marx. There's no way that they could be sure. they they must be as much of an ideologue. And the truth is a lot of the time they're not. Like I I don't really Biden has a theoretical construct he's operating under. We all do, but I don't really think Biden is like an academic guy sitting down and reading Probably Karl not. Marx or anything sure. like that, right? M- meanwhile, Democrats look at the conservatives and they go, well, we're operating coalitionally. You all must be operating coalitionally and lying about it. So what you're really doing, you just want to promote the white guy, the white men and all this nonsense about ideology. That's just a smokescreen. And the truth is, no, I've I've gotten drunk with both groups and behind the scenes, I can tell you, the conservatives actually do really care about the ideology. They don't pull the mask off. And, and say that their goal is to keep black people down. They would love for more black people to have guns. They're really into guns. Like, it, like, they're, they're the, these, um, uh, and, and then I'd say another one that would be great for anybody. And I would highly recommend his book, uh, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Um, he gets into this wonderful stuff of moral foundations theory. Um, uh, so moral foundations theory is the idea that we have like moral taste buds. And, uh, we have six of these taste buds and they are, uh an aversion to something an aversion to tyranny an aversion, an aversion to uh injustice to un, um to um filth to disloyalty uh and there's six of these things uh and um they're real which is to say that everybody actually is viscerally experiencing these things we're not lying about it but but we have different formulations yeah so just like we have different tastes exactly so just how like in india like they're they're less receptive to spicy than I am. I can't handle it. When I go to an Indian restaurant and they ask me or how cilantro. strong do you want this?
0: The, yes. the, the cilantro good thing one. where it tastes like soap to some people right. and delicious to others, right?
1: Right, exactly. I, yeah. If I go into an Indian restaurant and they go, how spicy do you want this? I tell them five on a white guy scale mm. and they laugh and go, okay, that means a two. And it's like, great, because they're, they're not as impacted by that, right? Um, so so the, these are visceral things that are happening. And you do tend to see these different formulations of what people viscerally react to. Conservatives tend to kind of have – they're more level. So they're experiencing disloyalty much higher than progressives and libertarians are. They're experiencing an aversion to filth much higher than, than libertarians and progressives are. Uh, meanwhile, progressives are really just like injustice and suffering. Progressives are – everybody's bothered by a puppy getting kicked. Everybody doesn't like that. Progressives really don't like that. It really bothers them. And they're really bothered by injustice, but they're kind of low on everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, conservatives are bothered by injustice, although they've got a different definition. But they're kind of level on everything. They have everything, but it's more like across the board. And then libertarians just kind of only care about tyranny. Uh, everything else doesn't bother them nearly as much. Yeah. And I'll say like in my end, I, I've taken his test multiple times. I do not have a gag reflex. Like every time I take Jonathan Haidt's test – I am apparently a traitor – with no gag reflex. I have you're, no You're the,
0: the English food of the, yes, uh, I,
1: I exactly, I've, I've got very low, like, like I, I've got this weird thing where I'm really high on suffering and I'm really high on tyranny, which doesn't tend to map in, in an American context. Uh, So I'm worried about the puppy getting kicked and I'm pissed off when you tell me to buckle my seatbelt on an airplane. Yeah, uh, yeah. Those are the two things that affect my political orientation, <laughs> but I'm not bothered by disloyalty. I don't like you're from Iowa. I'm from Oklahoma. All right. I don't, I don't care. That doesn't, I does not mean anything to me. Okay. Like you, 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 we're disrespectful to the flag by saluting it with a coffee cup in your hand. Ah, it's just a bunch of magic as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I have to acknowledge that when somebody is offended that the president salutes with a coffee cup or whatever, they're not making it up. They are actually offended by yeah. that. And so Jonathan Haidt does a great job of being able to explain a lot of the people that you disagree with, be they conservative, progressive or libertarian, they are really feeling these things that offend them. And when you understand that they're not lying to you or to go back to, um, uh, to Arnold Kling, you understand that they're not crazy. They are operating on something. Then it's at least a lot easier not to fly off the handle at them. And you can at least, I think, begin to understand where people are coming from. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but you don't, you don't immediately go, I don't understand this. It's scary. I hate it. They're the other team. I'm the good team. And I they're must the change
0: team. them. Or yeah. fight them. Uh, right. You, there, there are other options in there. Yeah, I'd, I'd throw in a, a, a combo of a couple of things, because if you only follow certain stuff, uh, you're going to get that phenomenon that you talked about where you end up thinking like, well, see, there's another example of how dumb they are. But I think you, if you do inoculate yourself and expose yourself to different opinions mm-hmm. than than just your own in-group – uh, that that's helpful. So uh, this, this is just what I do and it's mostly relates to Twitter. So it may not be that applicable to anybody else uh, in any other situation, but I tend to look for people who are not what I would expect, right? Uh-huh. Uh, The, the, um the black African conservative, Uh, uh-huh. you know, the, 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 Repu- the, the, the log cabin Republicans would be the right. classic example yeah. uh, of that. But, but, But and when I say black African conservative, I mean somebody from Senegal who's like really conservative.
1: We're we're like the super, super Texan thick, thick accent cowboy hat socialist.
0: Yeah, right. Exactly. Like look for for folks like that and for folks who aren't just constantly beating everyone else over the head, but saying like, hey, this is where I come from. I tend to try to follow a lot of those kind of people Mm -hmm. so that I get gut checked a lot. Yeah. but I get gut checked by people again. If they start to enrage me, I un- I uh, I get rid of it. I I do follow right, yeah. it because that's not that that's just going to drive me back into my corner. Uh, um, so I I try to follow people like uh, Varad Mehta is, is one person I follow. I'll check him out. Uh, who are just hey, like how do you spell that? Uh, v a r a d and then m e h t a. Just a person who's like yeah, but you you know like. But look at this side of it and definitely has an angle, definitely has uh-huh. an opinion. Uh, yeah. But but that I, I call it inoculating because you don't want to just follow all the people on the other side and, and read their most extreme things because that will just drive you back into your
1: corner. Yeah, oh, I, I think that's really, really smart, Tom. I think that's smart because I, I think that there are false tribes. I think that the Republican and Democratic Party are effectively false tribes. And the the problem that we experience is that you know, when we, when we enter periods of stress or duress, we tend to seek solace in a tribe. And so I think that's a large part happening right now. And I suspect it happens whenever there's big cultural shifts, big economic instability or wars. We rally around whatever our, our team is. In the case of the Republican and Democratic parties that are kind of becoming the, the catch-alls for that, they're not real tribes, in, in my opinion. Like, they're really, the Republican Party's like eight different tribes that have formed a coalition. The mm-hmm. Democratic Party's eight different tribes that have formed a coalition. Like Rand Paul and uh, Pat Buchanan really don't have a lot of, they have some overlap, but they don't have the same intellectual uh, positions. Like uh, um, Jared Polis and, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the, these are people that have different intellectual hubs they're plugging into. And one of the things that I think is very beneficial of finding people that don't fit a mold is you start to see where there are false lines or um, false models that you're laboring under. Uh, So something that bothers me, uh, and I've just kind of made peace with this, is everybody thinks I'm center whatever they're not. Uh So when I talk to conservatives, they think I'm center left. When I talk to progressives, they think I'm center right. Uh, Now, it's possible that I'm just an exact centrist, but what I take that to mean is maybe the left-right spectrum you're operating on, which was literally designed by a a bunch of dead Frenchmen. To target just how you feel about monarchical vetoes, maybe that is a blunt reductivist tool which is, is limited in use and is not universally applicable. So, like, when I, when I, like, I find that, um, when I talk to, like, oh, like Tim Poole or the guys over at the realignment podcast, like like folks that sort of are more on the economic populist side of things, that sort of forces me to go, oh, this is like a whole different map than what I've previously been looking at. Cause they'll, they'll, they'll agree with some stuff on conservatives and, and disagree with Democrats on a lot, but it doesn't really map up with what makes sense to me. But there's a coherence to it that I can sense. Yeah. And, and then I'm like, okay, then that means I need to reevaluate my map.
0: All right. Uh, well, hopefully that helps people. Uh, I, I know it's going to provoke thoughts. Hopefully it helps people kind of develop their own uh, framework. Uh, well, that's going to do it uh, for this episode. Andrew Heaton, thank you so much for chatting with me, man. This, this my, my grandmother and grandpa would be proud.
1: Uh, it was my absolute pleasure, Tom. I am a huge fan of yours. I was so excited to be invited on this new and glorious show. And I think we probably fixed America.
0: I you know if we didn't we came darn close uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If we not moved the needle. world. Uh, mm-hmm. so before we go I'm a huge fan of what you do as well uh, especially the political orphanage which which I think is a service to the world let folks know thank uh, you. Uh, what you got going on
1: thank you that's very kind of you one of the most flattering things that ever happens to me is you and I will text or talk and you will reference my show in a way that you actually listen to it and I'm I'm thrilled by that uh, it 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 fills me with light. Uh, so I host The Political Orphanage, which is a lot of the stuff that we talked about today, uh, because I kind of started the show coming out of partisan media that I worked in. I don't like partisan media. I'm very tired of it. Uh, hence the name The Political Orphanage. I wanted to create a space for people that don't feel like they're being catered to by red team versus blue team dynamics, maybe even have friends that they disagree with and like them uh, and want to – figure things out rather than just being gladiator fights with them. So uh, I created the, the political orphanage for that reason. I do a fair amount of the kind of cognitive stuff that we talked about today of getting into different perspectives and heuristics and getting into social trust and things like that. And, uh, and then the rest of the time I endeavor to get into uh, rather than why the Democrats are horrible and ruining America or why the Republicans are all fascists and ruining America, rather than doing that, I, I, I make a very earnest attempt to just figure out what are the actual tectonic elements beneath a particular issue. So like uh, a couple of months ago, I did one on, on housing. Um, and I I don't prepare, I I don't claim to be objective. Uh, I, I just claim to be earnest. So I, I, I am going in and I've got my own biases. Uh, as I mentioned during the show, I'm kind of a free enterprise, tiny government guy. But, uh, if it turns out I'm wrong about something, uh, I, I will attempt to course correct as I do not view my purpose as convincing people to agree with me. I'm just trying to get to the bottom of stuff. And, uh, I find that the people that listen to the political orphanage tend to have a, a temperamental union of, Having friends they disagree with, not like screaming, not like demonizing. And uh, if if the stuff we've been talking about today appeals to you, you might very well have a home on the political orphanage.
0: Yeah. Please join that. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll have another word with you next time.